Behind every cloud, there's another cloud. Judy Garland Chapter 10 There are definitely seasons in California, whatever anyone says to the contrary. In the winter, the smog lifts. The daytime skies are a blue that delights my New England soul. At night, the lights that sprawl from the San Gabriel Mountains to the sea glow against a heavenly dome of Mediterranean indigo. People wear sweaters. In 1991, when I turned 30, a film I had worked on for over a year was released. It got critical acclaim over Thanksgiving weekend, which is a very good omen for the Oscars, and as Christmas approached and the daytime temperatures maxed out at 68 degrees, the director I had faithfully assisted started to think about his next project, I let my heightened interest and sublimated infatuation with him slide. Film hours can lead to all kinds of alliances, kind of like the Stockholm Syndrome. Well, and I turned my attention to the holidays. My son, Jake, was six, a first grader. We made cookies and strung popcorn and cranberry garlands in a professionally decorated house. The walls were ivory, the ceilings high. The palette was neutral, with punches of pale blue and pinstripes of dark brown. I thought it looked like the home of a somewhat dull, rich relation. Speaking of which, I know it's an inelegant transition, but it's apt. My twice-married husband, a movie star gone squishy, suggested we take a tour of the town, all dressed up in holiday shine. So he sat beside me as I drove our neighborhood after the sun had set and before our son's bedtime. Jake, leaning in his seat to see palm trees wrapped in lights and eaves dripping with electric icicles, pressed his hands to the passenger's window, and his voice buzzed, look, as he spotted Santa's sleigh on a Hollywood Regency roof. I drove the flats of Beverly Hills as slowly as I could, pulling over to let others pass, hoping the dazzle wouldn't keep my boy up late. Heading down Rodeo and Wilshire, with stars and comets' tails stuck on lampposts, I couldn't help but think. It was somehow garish without snow, but Christmas had crept up on me. I began to feel the spirit. I saw my husband Dave as a pleasant older man with whom I shared a house and a child. Since the rolls had dried up with the years and additional pounds, he was home and more available to our son. While an Englishman we employed to look after Jake, one Mr. Booker, acted as a paradigm, my husband, always facile at taking on a role, became a good father. Sunday was his day with Jake exclusively. He took him on outings, to the beach, the movies, Legoland, sometimes to mass. Instead of feeling resentful that our romance had died with his midlife crisis, our short-lived separation, and my insistence on a career, I considered it a natural development due to our differing stages in life. I was growing increasingly fond of him, 
while at the same time emotionally detached. I wanted to make sure he was comfortable. To that end, I had a stroke of self-defined brilliance. Honey, I said to Dave, how about a real Christmas this year? He looked up from the Wall Street Journal. Since the days of white-hot celebrity were behind him, he had become increasingly interested in managing his money. The television in the library was always on a channel with a constant scroll across the bottom displaying the financial news. He made frequent calls to his cousin Silvio about investments that I assumed were extremely speculative. I had overheard conversations ranging from restaurants to alternative fuel vehicles to ultralight tennis rackets made with unheard of fibers. Like what? Like a real vigilia de Natale, festa de sette pesci, the whole family sitting down at the same table, I said. What whole family? You want to bust out the entire East Coast? Dave gave his paper a shake, but he was intrigued. No, I mean your whole family, our whole family, your first family, Andrew and Isabel and Gabrielle and you and me and Jake. A real Christmas. Hold on a sec while I clarify something. Gabrielle and Dave had employed me years ago on a break from college. Yes, that's me. No matter how I try rationalizing it or rectifying it, I am the former nanny who shoved Gabrielle and her two children out of the picture and married the heartthrob. What, here? asked Dave. Sure, I said. Who's going to cook? It was only six people and seven seafood courses. I hesitated. Hmm, we'll have it catered. Dave raised his paper in front of his reading glasses and grunted. If they come, we'll have it catered. Or your mom and dad can come. Your mom cooks almost like my mom did. Almost like mama. Coming from Dave was high praise. After a long year working on the movie with so many and so disparate personalities, I had honed a fine sense of etiquette. It was about time. It was beyond time. I determined the Christmas invitation should be delivered in person not over the phone. Over the years, Gabrielle and I had maintained a very workmanlike relationship. There was a pretty intense hiccup of hellacious rancor, but that had passed. Our relationship was fine. Our children shared a common, or uncommon, depends on how you want to parse it, father, but it wasn't warm. And so, the following morning, I made the drive to State Street in Santa Barbara and Gabrielle's catering kitchen. Gabrielle, for lack of a better phrase, was aging gracefully. Her blonde hair hadn't grayed. It had turned a silvery white. She wore it loosely pulled up in a French twist. Her features had softened. They looked a little blurred. The most noticeable thing about Gabrielle Klein was she looked relaxed and happy in her skin. Her kitchen shop was stocked with homemade caramels wrapped in cellophane bags, madeleines, langue de chat, and pot de creme. There was a gâteau saint honoré on the countertop along with a bouquet of flowers. It smelled like burnt sugar and roses. There were little cafe tables to sit at and share pastry and a coffee, but mostly the shop was a space for people to meet and leaf through event books while they planned their parties. The space was completely feminine and completely comfortable. Gabrielle had got it right. 
We conferred over our marble tabletop. Haven't seen you in a long time. You're looking great. You're being kind, etc. The gist of the conversation was diplomatic accord. Gabrielle appreciated my getting Andrew a job as a movie PA and my efforts to keep the kids in touch with their father. I also inferred that she liked, no, loved being her own woman and being away from the pressures of Hollywood. Fortunately, her catering kitchen wasn't doing an event on Christmas Eve. Unfortunately, getting Isabel to her father's for any kind of evening was going to be a problem. But Gabrielle assured me she would prevail. There were two young women behind the counter wearing starched aprons and dealing with customers. Behind them, home for the holidays and peeking around the door to the kitchen, was a sullen 17-year-old Isabel. I was aware both Andrew and Isabel felt dispossessed by their father. What I didn't know was Isabel, once a beautiful, cuddly child, blamed me entirely and hated me utterly. Feast or fiasco. Christmas Eve in the Taylor household tended toward the latter. My parents flew in for the week. Dave's first family showed for the appointed dinner. I, who didn't like to witness people out of control or be out of control, remembered that night as a meal of loaves and fishes on some kind of otherworldly plane. I remembered a long conversation with the Virgin Mary, robed in celestial blue and sparkling white, in my kitchen. We chatted about childcare. I remembered three kings and piles of gold and incense and a pounding at the front door. I even remembered the knee-dropping, awesome presence of the Archangel Gabriel. But I couldn't quite figure out what he, she, it, otherwise known as the Great Winged One, was doing at our house for dinner. All in all, I found the experience transcendent and more than a bit mystifying. All would be explained to me in time. Let's back up a little and talk about ketamine. It's a horse tranquilizer. In humans, it can be used as an analgesic or to relieve asthma or migraine. In emergency situations, like when surgery is required on a person who is trapped under a heavy object and can't be moved, say as the result of an explosion, a battle surgeon will often use ketamine instead of other anesthetics because it doesn't inhibit breathing. The only problem is the dose. It's tricky. It often causes hallucinations, usually of the godly visitation variety. That's not to say some people don't take it recreationally, but... One would think that at a fine, expensive equestrian girls' boarding school, such as the one my stepdaughter attended, this kind of substance would be under lock and key. Perhaps it was. Perhaps the ketamine was locked in the vet's cupboard in the old stone stable, along with a lot of other drugs. And perhaps Isabel had heretofore unknown lockpicking skills. Perhaps. What a crying Isabel later confessed to in the presence of the Beverly Hills police, called to the scene by her furious mother and dismissed with a movie star's plea not to press charges by her guilt-ridden father, 
was that she had dropped the crushed powder of a horse tablet she had found lying around at school in her stepmother's champagne. Merry Christmas! After the three officers had left, Gabrielle Klein rounded on her ex. Best thing in the world for that girl to spend a night in jail. I try to teach her a lesson and... David, your juvie daughter just slipped Billy a Mickey. Like some wannabe Borgia. Like some other mafia members of your fucking family that shall remain nameless. How could you? How could you stand there and defend her? By this time, Isabel was howling. It was her turn next. And you, you, that's it. You're crying. Look at your stepmother. I was canted over on a couch, watching the archangel beat its wings in the air like an angry swan. How those wings swept through the air. I could feel the wind against my face. Isabel zipped it and shuddered. That's it. No more boarding school. Never again. You'll be lucky if I let you out of the house when you're 40. Mom, Isabel whined. Gabrielle was implacable. I then saw the Virgin Mary put her robed arm on the haunch of a donkey and lead her away. Later, the Virgin, who was wearing a dress remarkably similar to one of my mother's, returned to make me drink six glasses of glacially cool water and tuck me into a cloud-like bed. From my perspective, it was the next day, Christmas, that all hell broke loose. I woke in the master bedroom in the king-sized bed and apparently had slept alone. Jake was sitting on the edge of the bed with a package he had wrapped in his lap. I could hear my mother's voice and Dave's in the hallway, subdued in a way meant not to frighten the children. They wanted to kill each other, but they were keeping it tight, well below a roar. Jake clambered into my outstretched arms and laid his head against my breastbone, and I hugged him tight. Merry Christmas, pumpkin. Should we go see what Santa left under the tree? I was implying motion would be immediate, but damn, I felt like lead. I did already. This is for you. I made it. He presented me with his gift. I untied a green bow and slipped my finger under the scotch tape and found a clay hand-painted object that could either have been an ashtray or a Christmas ornament. I gave Jake a squeeze. This is the most beautiful thing I have ever seen, little bug. I could swear it was glittering, pulsing. Oh, dear. I tucked it next to my side, out of my range of vision. What time is it? Whatever the hour was, my son had determined hugging time was over. He extricated himself from my arms and hopped down from the bed. Grandma says it's brunch time, but it's really lunch time, and I gotta go. And he made for the door. He turned briefly with his hand on the doorknob. Are you feeling better, Mama? I'm fine, honey. Just fine. After Jake was out of the room, I hoisted myself out of bed. I went into the bathroom and peered at myself in the mirror. I looked like I'd spent a cycle in the laundry and had been forgotten in the dryer. Gingerly, I touched my hair. My scalp was outrageously tender and felt like it was expanding. 
I remembered the visions of the previous night and tried to put them in perspective, then gave up. It was an impossible task. It was implausible, completely implausible. Keeping company with celestial creatures and feeling part of a greater whole? I thought of an oft-repeated phrase I heard when questioning the faith I was brought up in, accept the mystery, and found it just as tedious now as I had then. I wasn't hardwired for religion. Yet, if last night was any indication, maybe I was. What the hell had happened, anyway? Brunch was a largely silent affair. My mother had covered the table with food. Ed, my father, ate purposefully and well. Jake ate like a six-year-old, a little bite of everything he liked, and things he didn't like, he tried to camouflage on his plate. Dave just drank coffee after coffee. He looked pale and bloated under his tan. Mr. Booker was spending Christmas with relations in Manhattan. In the early afternoon, my father and Dave took Jake to a multiplex in Sherman Oaks to see Hook, an inopportune retelling of Peter Pan. My mother, wearing a beige turtleneck and gabardine slacks, put on a hat and sunglasses and instructed me to join her by the pool. I did. Lying side by side on a pair of chaise lounges, my mother addressed me with disapproval. So, no more divorce and then this? This is the life you want to lead? Still a little strung out, I wasn't taking the long look on my existence. I was just enjoying the feeling of the gentle winter sun on my face. Mom continued, what you call a life, Billy, others would call a charade, a loveless marriage, stepchildren who despise you. Andrew and I get along okay. Isabel used to, don't interrupt, and your own child being raised by a, a butler? I thought you liked Mr. Booker. Mr. Booker is one of the most competent people I know. That's not the point. The point is personal engagement. The point is how you prioritize. Mother Lydia was exasperated. You, a two-time college dropout, spend your days promoting make-believe. Other people's fantasies. What kind of a life is that? I thought it was the kind of life I liked. I said, however, the film industry is a driving force in LA's economy. Movies keep people working. Hmm. And your job, you schmooze and people pay you. You think that's a worthy career? I didn't feel like explaining my mother's error. I do. I just wanted her to be quiet. What about the example you're setting? Mom inquired. I'm not following you, Ma. Family, engagement, priorities, you said so yourself. Jake is not growing up in a broken home. No, Jake isn't but Isabel and Andrew have. That is what an ungodly amount of money and oh, a peculiar expression passed over my mother's face. She was suppressing something she wanted to say, a most unusual occurrence. Anyway, Isabel is clearly broken, she asserted. Isabel is a teenager, 
She'll get over it. We all do. We all do what? Drug our step-parents? Act out in ways that can cause enormous harm? I have spent a lifetime observing children, and this is not normal. She's just a rebellious teenager. I pissed her off. We'll work it out. When? Soon. My mother shook her head. I inhaled deeply and closed my eyes and announced I was going to take a nap. Go inside, then. You'll get a sunburn if you stay out, said Mom. I went inside and straight back to bed. It was no longer cloud-like. It felt like I was trying to doze on a monolith. Gabrielle and Andrew and Isabel returned at dinner time with an elaborate hamper stuffed with the makings of a classic ham dinner. Gabrielle and Lydia and I arranged a buffet in the kitchen while my dad sat contentedly and watched. Andrew carried Jake around the house on his shoulders and Isabel watched a video, Tootsie, with her father in the library. When I ventured into the paneled room to tell them dinner was ready, I was heartened to overhear laughter interspersed with their conversation. Maybe Isabel wasn't as thoughtless as I had assumed. See that? said Dave. Dustin Hoffman. He's still working. Ten years ago that. And this year, Hook. He's a character actor, Daddy. You're a leading man. Dave ruffled Isabel's hair. Her statement had made him happy. It showed a certain level of empathy, at least for her father. What she hadn't said, and what was perfectly true, was that Dave had been a leading man until he started developing a spare tire around his middle. We ate our Christmas dinner informally at a table in the kitchen. The kids pulled sodas from the refrigerator and we adults stuck to bottled water or beer. We talked. Everyone was on his or her best behavior. We avoided the topic of the previous evening, and when Isabel looked as if she was about to ask her father a question, probably about going back to boarding school, Gabrielle stared her down. At that, Dave coughed until he turned red in the face, but he wasn't choking, and he excused it with, I just had a little pepper at the back of my throat. Now this is what I call a nice, quiet evening at home. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Afterwards, as we were saying our goodnights, Gabrielle kissed my cheek and said in afterthought, Keep your eye on Dave. He looks a little under the weather to me. I smiled and nodded and gave Gabrielle a warm hug and promptly forgot precisely what she had said, lost in a newfound feeling of sisterhood with my previous boss, only recalling her statement years later. It had taken something major. Some might call it a criminal offense, But for once in my life, at that moment, I felt like I had Gabrielle's approval and or absolution. Having the family reunited for Christmas turned out to be a good idea after all. Andrew, too, was demonstrative in parting. He gave me a huge hug and said to all listening, Sweet! Which translated to, Thank you for the lovely evening. I had a delightful time. I clung to Andrew and said, Thank you, Andy. Thank you for being such a good big brother. Dave had his arm around Isabel's shoulders. He gave her a gentle shove in my direction. Isabel stumbled forward, looking sheepish. She gave me an anemic peck on the cheek and mid-gesture seemed to change her mind. 
She clamped her arms a little too tight around me and whispered in my ear, Next time, I won't screw up. While patting Isabel's back, it occurred to me. Does she mean she won't screw up dosing me again? Or does she mean she won't do it again? With Isabel, it was hard to say. Isabel had not inherited her father's expressive eyes. My parents departed on the morning of December 31st, Mom feeling vaguely dissatisfied and Dad as silent and oblivious to his family's inner workings as ever. Mr. Booker returned from his holiday at 4 p.m. and insisted on immediately reinstituting Jake's 8 o'clock curfew. He could see we had been lax in his absence. I was glad to see him back. Later that night, I observed Mr. Booker murmuring quietly to himself while he cleaned out the refrigerator of several offending items, sweetened fruit juices, Coca-Cola, Pepsi, boxes of fudge, and a half-eaten baba o rum, and felt some measure of sanity had returned to my life. I had been trying to avoid thinking of Christmas Eve for a week. It was too troubling to consider. Not the drug experience itself, Isabel's motive behind it. I just didn't want to go there. We, the current Mr. and Mrs. Taylor, had been invited to a few New Year's Eve parties, but decided we'd rather relax and stay in. We watched the ball drop in Times Square, switched off the TV, and Dave kissed me on the forehead and we went to bed. Separate beds. We had been sleeping separately since Christmas Eve, and while neither of us mentioned it, the fact was we slept much more soundly apart. On New Year's Day, Dave said to me, Hey, honey, do you mind if I go watch the Huskies over at Jeff's? Jeff was Dave's longtime agent. Today's the Rose Bowl. Sure, I said. Have a good time, sweetheart. I shouldn't be home too late unless they go into overtime. Don't worry about it. At 8.30 p.m. on New Year's Day, I asked Mr. Booker how long a football game usually lasted. I wasn't a fan. Mrs. Taylor, I do believe that would be around three hours. Hmm. By nine o'clock, I had called Jeff's house, and Jeff had said, Well, he left a while ago, Billy. He should be home by now. Give me a couple minutes, and I'll call you back. Exactly 17 minutes later, Jeff called back. As the phone rang, before I picked up, I looked over my shoulder. For a moment, I felt as if someone was in the room behind me. Uh, Billy, there's no good way of saying this. Is there someone home with you? I'm here with Mr. Booker and Jake. Okay, Billy, Davis had a heart attack. Jeff's voice cracked. Is he okay? Uh, Billy, Dave is dead. He had arrived DOA at Cedars after paramedics had been dispatched to the Four Seasons Hotel. Dave was found naked on his back in bed with no pulse, his skin already turning blue. Efforts to revive him were unsuccessful. In the room when the paramedics arrived were two hotel security officers and a weepy and hastily clothed call girl. His agent had procured the call girl for Dave. Dave had expressed an interest in blowing off steam after a stressful holiday. Later, when the agent met me at the hospital, I couldn't tell if Jeff 
was more mortified that he had been caught pimping or that he had lost a client. I remembered invoking a curse, a malediction on Dave and his whores when I had initiated our abandoned divorce. And while the rational part of my brain rejected the hint of causality, the not-so-rational part of my brain thought, be careful what you wish for. Besides, that was just messy, magical thinking. Now I had more convoluted and more practical worries. After pressure had been brought to bear, Dave's obituary noted he had died suddenly at the home of his friend and agent, doing what he loved, watching football and sharing the feelings of goodwill brought on by sports, nostalgia, and the judicious intake of a few beers. Gabrielle and I thought it best for our children if the family fiction we created to protect Dave Taylor's reputation was backed up by the Los Angeles Times, the New York Times, and the Boston Globe. At the time, the internet as we know it only existed as a database to share library catalogs between universities. Having recently discovered my facility for organizing things while working as an assistant for the director Cooper Daniels, I arranged the funeral. It was enormous and well attended, standing room only. Andrew, who had always seemed slightly embarrassed by his parents, delivered a solemn and uplifting eulogy. Isabel couldn't stop crying, twice abandoned by her father. Jake, ever positive, didn't really understand the ramifications of death. He figured if Daddy did it, it must be okay. Immediately after the funeral, at the house, after all the food had been put away and all had gone to bed, including my parents, I sat with Darla, a friend from my first year in Hollywood, both of us in coats, on the patio, poking rosemary sprigs broken from the hedge into an outdoor fireplace. They burned with a satisfying crackle and curl, the scent hanging in the air like incense. Darla and I leaned in toward the fire. Thank you. Thank you for staying awake with me, I said. Don't be silly. It's my pleasure. Darla looked up at the sky. Would you look at that? It was very late and the city had gone quiet. Stars sparkled and the house behind us looked ever so small against the arc of heaven. Darla, yes? Why do you think this place? I nodded toward the house. Well, why doesn't it feel like home? What are you on about? I don't know. It just doesn't feel like home to me. Billy love, home isn't a place. It's a person. It's, it's a place. It's a person. It's Jake. It's your parents. It's... She pulled my coat collar up around my neck. I get it. Good. In the days following the funeral, what I felt most was absence, as I felt when viewing Dave's body. A body was a peculiar thing drained of life. Whatever Dave had been to me, he had been a defining structure, and now that structure was gone. Absolutely and profoundly gone. Some people embrace change. Others fight against it. Still, whatever change came my way was buffered by boatloads of money. Dave, to my surprise, well, let's be fair here, it was mostly to my attorney's surprise. Dave had been an astute investor. 
He had a balanced portfolio. He had planned for the future. Trust funds had been established for all the children to be held until they reached the age of 25. In his will, cash gifts were specified for his closest friends and associates and his ex-wife. I inherited the bulk of the estate. Another little shift on the axis, another little rumble under the social surface of Los Angeles. At the age of 30, I was a very rich widow. At the outset of mourning, what concerned me most was continuity and an unexpected wave of loneliness. I felt adrift, unanchored. A pair bond keeps us social and healthy. Granted, Dave had bonded, repeatedly, well beyond our pair. So rationally, I should have felt, considering the circumstances, maybe just a little bit liberated, able to pursue my own interests. What I really felt was extremely lonely and kind of disassociated from my previous sense of self. What that sense of self consisted of was of slowly evolving arm candy. I knew I was evolving. I hoped I had been. I had been working very hard to evolve. I didn't want to plateau out on widowhood. I gave Mr. Booker a raise. I hinted around to friends and family that I had plenty of room in the house, if. Nobody took me up on my offer. My parents had lived their whole lives in Massachusetts, and my friends all had their own fish to fry. Even my young friend Shep, in his last year at USC and on scholarship, laughed at the thought. Sugar, I love you to pieces, but there is no way in the world you'd be happy living with Captain Whoopi here. I was a little bit dulled on the uptake. Who? Baby, that's me. I'm 21. Did you even know condoms come packaged by the hundreds? I smiled. I was suffering too much self-involvement to laugh and said, I did not know that. Then, quite suddenly, I thought of Cooper Daniels. He had been at the funeral. I actually hadn't had a conversation with the director since before Christmas. I had the vague impression he had spent New Year's in Las Vegas. But in the weeks after Dave's death, I felt I was operating in an oppressive fog, the kind from home. It had to do with sea ice and cold ocean currents. And I was waiting for the Southern California sun to burn it away. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed the story, please tell a friend.